This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, some interesting new recommendations coming out of the White House Conference on Aging. The group which convenes once every 10 years has issued new rules governing nursing home care and new guidelines for determining how they are compensated by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. Once every 10 years. That's that's not very often. <laughs> so perhaps the most notable change has to do with the proliferation of the use of electronic health records, Mark, which were barely in use a decade ago. Now they have the chance to collect meaningful data on patient care in nursing homes, and the new rules aim to facilitate better sharing of that data. Also, uh, considerable scientific evidence against the overuse of antipsychotic drugs in older patients, along with the overuse of antibiotics. So new recommendations that seek to curb all these problems. The new rules allow for nursing home patients to be able to choose their roommates, if at all possible, including same-sex couples, siblings, and longtime friends. The idea is that families and their loved ones should be free to exercise personal choice in these care facilities. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And there are concerns from some advocacy groups that the new rules aren't doing enough to address the shortage of nurses in nursing home and long-term care facilities. The current nurse-to-patient ratio requirement is one nurse per 20-bed facility, and the sheer volume of care can overwhelm nursing staff who are caring for often very complex needs of elderly patients, including dementia. And there's been uh, another dramatic shift in recent weeks, Margaret. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid has recently announced an agreement with the American Medical Association that would allow for end-of-life care discussions to be encouraged between patients and providers during the normal course of uh, treatment decisions. This conversation is one that we believe is long overdue and with continued aging population. 10,000 Americans, Margaret, per day are turning 65. Not us yet. Uh, (laughs) It should be a more common protocol uh, that is encouraged. Uh, And CMS is looking to improve the way care is delivered and the way it's paid for. And when you consider that the annual Medicare budget tops $550 billion, that's a pretty important consideration. And this is something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Sean Cavanaugh is Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicare at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Lori Robertson will be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Sean Cavanaugh in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The recent Supreme Court decision upholding legality of tax subsidies for residents in all states to offset the cost of insurance purchase has led to an interesting phenomenon. Some states that set up exchanges of their own are now focusing on the possibility of the federal marketplace as an opt-out for having to run a complex and costly insurance marketplace of their own. At least three states with their own marketplaces, Minnesota, Vermont, and Hawaii, have taken steps to switch to the federal system after finding their own marketplaces were too much of a financial, technical, or administrative burden. The court's ruling means they can make that move without disqualifying their residents for subsidies. Meanwhile, the next open enrollment is set to begin November 1st. 
The White House Council on Aging has issued new guidelines for treating the growing population of America's elderly, 10,000 Americans per day, aging into the system at 65 years old, increasing the burden on the health care system, and will continue to weigh heavily with the advanced burden of disease. Recommendations were made that would incentivize long-term care facilities and nursing homes to provide better living environments for residents, better training in dementia treatment and handling, and better use of electronic health data to keep the elderly from frequent hospital admissions. A series of other recommendations seek to improve the care for the nation's aging veterans. Type 2 diabetes is expected to afflict about 75 million Americans by 2030, and scientists at the University of North Carolina may have come up with a much more user-friendly tool to keep insulin levels constant. Currently, some 21 million Americans must rely on daily injections or a pump to stabilize insulin. Researchers in the study have created a simple patch worn on top of the skin, which releases insulin when it detects a fluctuation. They're looking to do human trials soon. And it's official. China has created a diagnosis. Internet addiction is now an official diagnosis for the Chinese Ministry of Health, which sees a nation increasingly dependent on their electronic devices to the point of causing anxiety, loss of sleep, depression, and more when they can't gain access. I'm Ariane O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Sean Cavanaugh, Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicare at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, where he's responsible for overseeing regulation and payment of Medicare fee-for-service, private Medicare plans, and prescription drug programs. Prior to that, Mr. Cavanaugh oversaw the development of new payment and service delivery models as Deputy Director at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Previously, Mr. Cavanaugh was Director of Healthcare Finance at the United Hospital Fund and also served in a senior positions at Lutheran Healthcare in Brooklyn, New York, as well as the New York City's Mayor's Office of Health Insurance Access. He earned degrees from the University of Pennsylvania and Johns Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health. Mr. Cavanaugh, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, happy birthday. Uh, this is really incredible. C- CMS is 50 years old uh, this month, and I can't think of any organization that has had such a profound impact mm-hmm. on the millions of lives uh, all across America. So you all must, hopefully you're getting a little break to celebrate uh, during this month. There are a number of celebrations, mostly, uh, and some assessment of where mm. we've been over the last 50 years and where we're headed. Yeah, as you said, it's been a really terrific history in this mm-hmm. program, and we're planning for a similar future. Well, you should, you should be so proud. And, and change is always uh, abounding in health care, and certainly the Affordable Care Act has been, uh, been behind some of that. But uh, the center has also been uh, focused in on innovation and programs as CMS Innovate, which you're in charge of, the Idea Lab at uh, the Department of Health and uh, Human Services, uh, PCORI, and many others. Can you describe for our listeners uh, these uh, different programs and uh, what are some of the distinct features as well as how their efforts interconnect? Well, Mark, you make a good point that there's quite a few things underway. A couple themes have emerged. One is we're really trying to create a variety of pathways to meet the needs of providers. So there's a wide variety of healthcare providers out there. You know, there's community health centers, physicians, hospitals. So we're trying to create opportunities for all of them to participate in new models and find ways to improve care. There's also a wide spectrum of where providers are on their ability to transform. Some are 
leading-edge organizations that have been moving to new models of care for many years. And there's others, particularly smaller practices, that are just starting to understand areas where they could improve and trying to find out how they make that shift. So we're trying to make sure we can meet the needs of all of them. And the work really falls into three categories. One is to create an expectation for improvement. So a lot of public reporting about how people are doing on preventing infections and uh, other adverse consequences of healthcare. The second is creating business cases for improvement. So making sure when providers do the things we want them to do and improve care that they are rewarded under our payment systems and not the opposite, which has been true in the past. Mm -hmm. And then finally, making sure providers have the tools they need for improvement. So we, a couple months ago, announced something called the Transforming Clinical Practice. This is a major investment we're going to make in reaching out to small practices around the country, trying to find out what their needs are, data needs, infrastructure needs, what they need to know and what they need to do to improve how they provide care. So I think as you look across the government and see the different things we're doing, they all fall into one of those buckets and they work together and hopefully drive uh, improvement in the health system. I think all of you at CMS would probably be among the first to say that you can't do it alone, that you're always operating in partnership with others around the country. And I'm particularly interested in this trend, and I think it's been led in many ways by the White House through multiple agencies, of the interface between public and private entities as a partnership that spurs innovation. We've had the recent Health Data Palooza event in Washington that brought thousands of tech entrepreneurs together with HHS officials to co-create solutions to some of our big uh, healthcare challenges. Tell us a little bit about why these public-private partnerships are so essential to progress right now. Well, Margaret, you're exactly right. This really starts at the White House. First and foremost is we all acknowledge, particularly when it comes to health system improvement, that we don't have all the answers here. So I think we're reaching out to learn more from what's happening with other payers, whether they're commercial payers, what's happening in the provider community, and how we can build upon those successes. Probably the best example of that is uh, the Innovation Center at CMS over the last couple of years has twice solicited what we call Healthcare Innovation Awards. And this is where they opened the doors and said, please send us your best ideas and Mm -hmm. we'll fund your project for uh, three years. Mm so that we can study it and learn from it and see how it might have lessons for more broadly. And so that's where we didn't go out with a regulation or something saying, here's what providers need to do. It was quite the opposite. It was tell us what you're doing and how we could learn from it. You know, we are a large payer for healthcare services, you know, the largest in the country, but we're certainly not the only payer. And if we want to drive change and drive improvement, we see a value in working with other payers so that, you know, the, the physician in his or her office isn't getting 12 different reports from different payers explaining the same thing different ways, rewarding different behaviors. I think to the degree we can all agree on common metrics of what improvement looks like, public-private cooperation in supporting that is essential. Sean, uh, prior to taking up your current role at CMS, you were the Deputy Director for Program and Policy at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You came up with and have been focused in on the uh, accountable care organization and patient-centered medical homes. I think it's slowly permeating into the country's 
uh, consciousness about ACOs. I'm not sure everybody completely understands how they work. Maybe you can tell our listeners about the type of traction you've seen in some of these innovative approaches and, and what hurdles also have you uh, identified? Well, the first thing I would say as far as traction, and we're very pleased to see that there's enormous appetite and an enormous willingness among providers around the country to try something different to improve care. You know, as much as people had criticized fee-for-service medicine, it actually was working financially very well for many providers. Mm-hmm. We all thought it could do better by patients. And yet we've seen providers step up and understand that fee-for-service medicine often is not in the best interest of beneficiaries and patients. One area where we tried a lot of things is in accountable care organizations, and that took two tracks. One, through the Innovation Center, we used the Pioneer ACO model, which was for organizations that were at the leading edge of care coordination and population health management that have been doing this for many years. And the other was a program created by Congress called the Shared Savings Program, Between them, we have over 400 ACOs providing care to over 7 million Medicare beneficiaries around the country. The great news here is on the quality front, both of those programs have demonstrable improvements in the quality of care Medicare beneficiaries have received. They improved care from one year to the next, and in areas where there were common quality measures, they outperformed fee-for-service providers. Mm -hmm. So already 7 million beneficiaries receiving a higher level of care. And the CMS actuaries recently issued a report saying that the Pioneer ACOs, in addition to generating the quality improvements, had also saved the government over 300 and I think it was $380 million over two years. So another program that got a quick start and some great early results is called Independence at Home. This is a program that's tailored specifically for the frailest Medicare beneficiaries who are living at home but have been in and out of the hospital and have multiple chronic diseases. And physician groups around the country that focus specifically on these populations and that provide a lot of care in the home, so a lot of home visiting. Mm -hmm. We recently had a report coming out in just one year. They saved over $3,000 per beneficiary for these folks and improved the care they got. And as you can imagine, with the home visiting, the beneficiaries are very pleased with the care they're getting. So as we get this traction, we also see the Secretary Burwell from Health and Human Services, she announced very specific goals for CMS to try to move Medicare towards these new payment Mm -hmm. models, because the feeling really is that a lot of improvement can be driven by payment. So she's talked about making sure we get all of our fee-for-service payment systems into value-based designs, meaning that they'll reward improvements in quality, but also to start developing on these alternative payment models like the ACOs and the independents at home. And this was recently reinforced when Congress repealed the SGR formula. Mm They also created a scenario where they're trying to encourage us to create alternative payment models. So I think you'll see more of this, and I think you see, as I said, a lot of openness and willingness on the provider community to work in these environments. Well, that is very positive, and it's not um, always the case, and it's not always the case dealing with some of the entrenched larger organizations. We've seen this case in point a bit uh, with the pushback against adopting some new technologies, health IT protocols, certainly meaningful use is something that's just even recently in the op-ed pages been beaten up a bit. Uh, But another area has been the adoption of the ICD-10 medical billing codes, which the American Medical Association and some other uh, organizations have been pretty uh, ardently opposed to. And we understand that CMS has come to some kind of agreement with the AMA on how to move forward with the October 1st deadline this year and make that kind of 20-year overdue upgrade to the ICD-10. 
these large organizations often get a bad rap, but what I've found is that when they come to us and are concerned about some of the changes we're proposing, mm-hmm. it's really important for us to listen and understand where they're coming from. Um, in the AMA in particular, I think, has been a very strong advocate for the smaller physician practices. Mm-hmm. And so when they speak about the challenges facing these practices and others, we need to understand where they're coming from and see where there's common ground. And I think you saw that in the most recent announcement. While the AMA still, in fairness, I think they still have some concerns about ICD-10 by talking to them about how we would implement it and transition in the coming year. We still need physicians to submit valid ICD-10 codes. But we gave some reassurances that even if they can't use the most specific ICD-10 code, if they're using the right family and they're making a good faith effort to comply, we're not going to come after them with auditors or anything. That's Mm -hmm. never been the purpose. Transitions are hard, but as you said, I think the move to ICD-10 is overdue. It's time. I think in the long run, it's going to be to the benefit of physicians and patients. We just have to work together to get through the transition. We're speaking today with Sean Cavanaugh, Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicare at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Sean, you know, CMS has been releasing a number of rules of late that have uh, led to the slowing down and scaling down of the cost of treating some 50 million American seniors on Medicare. And could you tell our listeners about some of the changes CMS has been recommending concerning outpatient reimbursements, telemedicine? I think you were in the New York Times uh, on the front page uh, on the telemedicine reimbursement, in-home nursing care and end-of-life care and other approaches uh, to care delivery. Really, on a per capita basis, the last few years have been historic low rates of growth in Medicare costs and really pleased about that. Mm-hmm. I, I think Low-cost growth has allowed a number of things, one of which is it allows Congress to make better policy, and I think it helped contribute to an environment where they had the ability to repeal the flawed SGR formula. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of benefits to lower-cost mm-hmm. growth, and I think, a good uh, point. as you know, we face the challenge of the baby boomers. We're going to have almost 50% growth in enrollment in Medicare in the next 15 wow. years as the baby boomers age into the program. And that's why, you know, the secretary, as I said, announced that we're going to try to really move aggressively to new payment models and why I think Congress endorsed that with the repeal of the SGR. Um, We're going to be trying a lot of different things, uh, new models, new payment systems. Uh, You mentioned specifically telemedicine. I think that's an area that has enormous potential, and we're trying new models in a different area. Some of those in our innovation awards that Mm -hmm. I mentioned, we have a number of providers showing how telemedicine can be used in innovative ways. And we'll be rolling it out in some of our ACO programs in the next year or two as well. So all these technologies, all these innovative ideas, we're going to be testing many of them because we really have a significant challenge before us with the aging of the baby boomer. You know, it's interesting. I was just thinking that uh, wasn't Medicare the first uh, insurer to pay for telemedicine for the rural health clinics really going back decades? So I Mm -hmm. think way ahead of the curve on that one. And I I guess all of our conversations, Sean, speaks to the notion that change is hard, but it's inevitable. And and I would add to that, and we like it best when it's happening to somebody else, usually (laughs) not not to ourselves. But but we see uh, such changes happening across the healthcare spectrum, and not just at the federal level, but at the state level as well. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the state innovation models or the SIM We're now in round two. Eleven states are receiving over $620 million to test out their models for how they're going to 
really significantly change healthcare in a way that affects the vast majority of the people in their state. Tell us what role is CMS Innovate playing in the SIM and what are some of the most interesting innovations that you're seeing in the SIM so far? What, what do you see so far that's worthy of scaling up nationally? As we've discussed, you know, Medicare at $550 billion and growing plays this really large role in the healthcare system in the United States. But when we look at the states, we see partners who have many tools themselves and in many ways complementary tools. Um, they have policy levers that we don't have but that can help drive change. Um, one, they are a large payer themselves through Medicaid, um, and Medicaid's been growing, as you know, after, so with the Affordable Care Act. But also they have a long history, many of these states, with convening providers and working locally to to define change and drive change um, in a way that the federal government doesn't have. Um, and, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, they're also operating marketplaces in some cases. So they have a lot of ability to drive change, and that the purpose of the state innovations model is to recognize that and build on that momentum. So as you said, we've given grants to quite a few states. They're convening providers and payers to talk about how the drive for improvement should work in their state. And really the value add there is just that, as much as anything, it's the convening of bringing people together, reaching consensus on what kind of change works for payers and providers, and we've been trying to support that. One of the exciting models out of the states comes from the state of Maryland. Um, they have a long history in Maryland, somewhat unique, of hospital rate regulation. And they came to us and wanted to modernize the way they did it. They thought that the model that they were utilizing was developed in the 1970s, and they wanted to move toward a more modern approach that looked more globally at hospital costs. And they just finished a very successful year where they generated savings to the federal government and improved on some quality metrics. I don't think a lot of states will want to go to that very strong regulatory model, but I mentioned Maryland because it was a, a way of working with the federal government, of coming to us. They had a plan of what they wanted to do. They had a pretty good idea of what kind of support they needed from the federal government. So we're trying to engage with other states in that way, too. And um, and I think there's going to be a, a, a lot more percolating in the state innovation models in the next year or two. Sean, there's been a, an enormous amount of uh, a capital been put into uh, hospitals and private practices converting. Uh, the uh, ARA put in billions of dollars uh, so that we can have this uh, important and dramatic shift from paper records to electronic health records. And uh, uh, we've, I think, taken a... <laughs> mighty strides in the last year, and yet there's still still work to be done in terms of uh, interoperability and uh, the health information exchanges. And part of the requirement is for practices and organizations to attain meaningful use uh, in health IT. And uh, we've seen some practices struggle. Um, this uh, change, as Margaret said, doesn't necessarily come easy or willingly, but um, and there's been a struggle at uh, meeting uh, stage two of meaningful use requirements. What what kinds of programs are being facilitated uh, by CMS to expedite the uh, adoption of health IT and the ability to use data to effectively improve uh, uh, quality of care and outcomes? Mark, I think you're right, which is we've all seen significant strides being made in the use of health information technology. But I think it's universal, the belief that the potential of these technologies is still not fully tapped, that there's so much more that could be done, particularly to make them interoperable. 
um, so that there's data sharing and in the management of health needs around the country. So I, I still think we have a lot of work to do. We've tried to balance that in our meaningful use regulations, balancing pushing forward and making sure we tap into the potential of HIT, while at the same time understanding the struggles of providers and vendors and keeping up with change and making sure this works in meaningful ways. One point I would add is, you know, one of the things the federal government can do with, is some of the work we're doing that isn't specifically about HIT. To the degree that we reward care that really focuses on positive outcomes and efficiency, we're implicitly creating a, a, a business case for practices to find out a, a way to make this HIT work in a meaningful way. So that's part of our work is not specifically through meaningful use, but also just trying to drive towards the types of care where interoperable HIT is indispensable. We've been speaking today with Sean Cavanaugh, Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicare at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You can learn more about their work by going to cms.innovate.gov. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? In late June, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Obama administration in a case challenging the subsidies that are available through federally run insurance marketplaces. The reaction from both sides was swift and in some cases misleading. President Obama said that the ACA made health care, quote, a right for all. But the law doesn't achieve universal coverage, and it was never expected to. The White House estimates that 16 million uninsured have gained coverage under the law, but that still leaves more than 30 million uninsured. And the Congressional Budget Office estimates that in 2025, there still will be 27 million uninsured. The law reduces the uninsured, but it doesn't cover everybody. On the Republican side, a day before the ruling, Senator Ted Cruz claimed that premiums had gone, quote, through the roof citing a $3,000 increase in family employer plans since the law was enacted. The figure is correct, but that's actually evidence of relatively low premium growth. Employer premium growth has been slower since the law was enacted compared with the growth before. Premiums have grown more slowly under Obama than they did under President George W. Bush. However, experts say the primary reason isn't the Affordable Care Act. Instead, it's the sluggish economy. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the 6.6 million births per year in this country, over half are unintended. And among teens, those rates are even higher. Colorado has been conducting an experiment for several years to examine what might 
happen if sexually active teens and poor women were offered the option of long-term birth control, such as IUDs or implants. The first question to answer, would they take the offer? What was so striking was the word of mouth amongst um, these young women to each other and the network of support that was built uh, amongst uh, these young women to access uh, this program through these clinics to help the tens of thousands of of women over the course of the four to five years really did then um, result in these significant decreases in unintended pregnancies and abortion. Dr. Larry Wolk is medical director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. He says the results were nothing short of astounding. The resultant decrease is 40% plus or minus in, in both categories, pregnancy and abortion, over these four to five years, those reductions may be even more dramatic when you extend this out over an additional year to more than 50, even approaching 60% reduction. And the results showed not only a dramatic decrease in unintended pregnancies, there was a significant economic benefit to the state as well. We've seen a significant decrease in the number of young moms and kids applying for and, and needing public assistance, whether that's public insurance, whether that's through the WIC program. You know, we hope that then longer term, this will translate into better social and economic outcomes for these folks and um, for us as a state and, and our state's population. And in spite of what conventional wisdom might lead one to assume, the incidence of sexually transmitted diseases dropped in this population as well. And amongst young women 15 to 24, we've seen a decrease in sexually transmitted infections and the rates are now below the national averages. Many other state health departments are already consulting with Colorado on the successful outcome of their experiment. A free, long-term contraception program offered to at-risk teens and women trying to avoid the economic hardship of unplanned pregnancies, leading to a number of positive health and economic outcomes for all involved. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.